So I'm going to start off with a few of my own questions, but I know there's people in this audience who are going to be dying to ask questions yourself. Uh, when the time comes, I think just raise your hand and the microphone will find its way to you and try to move through as many as possible. But Luca, first of all, I mean, congratulations. An extraordinary accomplishment. Um, the first thing I'm really curious to ask you is there's a lot of um, collaborators in this film. Um, as well as your sensibility, I get a strong sense of James Ivory's sensibility. I'm curious to know how did this project originate and find its way to you? Uh, yes. Well, the movie, I've been approached to by the producers, two of the producers of this film, the ones that originated the project, Peter Spears and Howard Rosman, uh, almost 10 years ago, uh, while I was prepping I Am Love, and they knew me, and they had read the book, and the book was set in Italy, and it was set in some specific place that the author, Andrea Asiman, had not indicated in the, in the book. So they wanted to know my opinion, if I could trust where the place was. I read the book, I loved the book, and I said, this is Liguria, it's Bordighera, the border, it's on the border between Italy and France. I gave them the context, I explained them the geography, and from that conversation, we moved into more in-depth conversations and we tried to put together the movie with different incarnations, different scripts, different directors, and um, I move up from consultant to executive producer, from executive producer to director to producer, and they tried to persuade me to do, to be directing the movie, um, and uh, I was resisting about, I had a very strong resistance because I, I the, the, the least thing I wanted to do was a movie about rich people lounging because I heard <laughs> So I said, mm. uh, then, you know, slowly, slowly the movie found me. And we moved the, uh, the movie was set first in Liguria, then in Rome, then in Sicily. Ivory for a moment was supposed to direct it, but unfortunately we haven't been able to raise the funds to make his, this movie. Uh, we've been able to do to raise some money for making me directing the film. And I said, okay, let's make the movie in the same place where I live in. This is Crema, it's... Uh, when they said to him, what do you do in Crema? What he replied is exactly what happens in Crema. Uh, in the winter, it's quite... Um, and, uh, yeah. And we did it as a, as a sort of uh, occasion to be together. It, it does feel slightly different from your previous films. It's sort of the, the, there's not as much editing, there's not, a, not as much camera movement or, or zooming in. And I know you're working, you worked with a cinematographer on this film that you had worked with before. Were you consciously changing the style of this film or did that just happen organically? Uh, first of all, I, 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 had work, I, haven't, I had worked as a producer with the Sion Bumuk de Bron, the master that made the cinematography of this movie. And I discovered him because the director I produced the movie, Ferdinando Cito Filomarino, wanted to work with this director of photography who had made these amazing films with Apicciatong, Reverse of Good, yes. And so that's how we brought Simon Bo in Italy. And once uh, I finished The Biggest Splash, I wanted to have a new experience with something new, and I asked permission to Ferdinando to work with Simon Bo. I got the waiver. Then I made also Suspiria with him, um, which we are working on now. Uh, well, the three movies, I mean, a big Call Me By Your Name, I Am Love and Call Me By Your Name and A Biggest Splash of Call Me By Your Name, in a way, I see them as three movies about the desire. 
But in the first two, there is a sense of a dread or aggression or nostalgia, something that has to deal with a sort of resistance and something about a fight. In this movie, I always felt we were dealing with the, the beauty of a, 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 a newborn idea of desire, something that is unbiased, uncynical, and, and that in a way has the wonderment uh, of uh, being able to conquer the world. So the tone I, I was thinking instead of the, the very uh, angular and spiky tone I was looking for, I am love and the aggressive and rock uh, uh, tone I was looking for, bigger splash, was the one of an, of an ideal. So that's why this is a movie that is a, a bit more simplified in, in its tone, yet there is quite a lot of movements. The point is that we decided to shoot the movie, as always with me, in 35mm, also, we wanted to work only with one lens. We never changed the lens. For, for those who are, understand the language of technical language of cinema, which is not so important, but yet you understand that when you change the lens, you have different possibility of approach to the to the to the, to the framing. But if you have only one lens, you are really bound, and you have to make what is on in front of the camera be instead of trying to overcome it with your technique. That's why you have this feeling, I guess. And music plays a really big part in your, your films. I was wanting to ask you about the, the song Love My Way by the Psychedelic Birds. Is that, was that from the novel or is that something you added? And what does the song mean to you? It's not in the novel. Uh, I love the life of the first. I, I was 14 when I saw Pretty Pink, so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's from Tough Heaven. I, I'm a, I, I, I am, I, am a, I am in the middle ground between like the, the MTV generation and the old-fashioned cinephile uh, generation. So as much as I love uh, the genre noir, I love the psychedelic first. And the idea of putting them together in one movie was irresistible. But what's funny is that none of the young actors in the movie, they knew anything about the psychedelic first. They didn't know anything. So we had to teach them. And we had to teach them how to dance. He was very embarrassed. Duce, duce, I don't want to do it. You should do it. You should do it. It was great. It's, it's, it was but, but Timmy is amazing. Timmy jumped into the framing during the dancing and he started to dance. And it was like miracles. He said, Timmy, how did you learn that? Oh, I did it by myself. It was great. This is, um, yeah, Timmy Chalmet. Yeah. Was he. Um, did he audition for this role, or is he someone that you had seen in something else and just straight away said this must be? I, I rarely audition. I don't believe in audition. I think it's silly. Uh, I much rather prefer to talk to people and to see if they have a spark in their eyes. Uh, plus the fact that the Anglo-Saxon canon, whether it's American or British or Australian, it's quite remarkable. I mean, you have such fantastic performance. Uh, uh, so I, I met uh, him because uh, the husband of one of the producers uh, represented him and uh, he told me, you know, there is this young kid, you should meet him uh, as a producer, like, before I was, was uh, hired as a director and, and I immediately agreed with that, that Timothy had something special. In the meantime, he was cast in Homicide and he was cast in Interstellar, he made this Broadway play by John Patrick Shanley that was a sort of 
great New York event. Uh, and uh, so we, he grew with the movie, and then the perfect age came together, and he was here. It's amazing. It's such a beautiful performance. Um, let's go to questions from the audience. I could do this all night, but I don't know these people. So let's take one on the ground first. I can see a, a person there with their hand up on the, the right of the aisle with a that person right there. Then we'll take one from the top. Hi. I just wanted to say congratulations on the film and thank you for the film because it was an absolutely beautiful story. And uh, I've read the book and I didn't think it was filmable and you've proved me very, very wrong, so thank you. You thought it was unfilmable? In some ways, because it's, it's such an internalised book. It's, it's, it, so much of the story is in Elio's head and... I wasn't sure how you could bring that to the screen and, and through the way that you framed the story and the way that you told the story and the performances that you got from the actors, you absolutely did that. So, thank you. That wasn't my question, though. <laughs> my question is um, a little bit about some of how you have found the, the reception of this film. I first heard about it, obviously, coming out of Sundance. It had a lot of buzz. There was a lot of people talking about it. And then there's been a lot of critics talking about it and then... Last, last week, the trailer dropped, and so it sort of became more widely known, it was getting shared around. How have you found it to see that the reception has not changed, but now that it's out to a wider audience, you've got everything from, you know, Barry Jenkins having a countdown on Twitter and talking about how he can't wait to see this, to some of the discourse that's gone on about how the, the trailer, they fear it depicts an unhealthy relationship, when that's absolutely not what it depicts at all. How much is it frustrate you as a filmmaker to see such a wide variety of people judging a film that they haven't seen yet? Um, <laughs> I, I, I wanna, the only thing I can say is that Sony is doing an extraordinary work. Okay. They're fantastic. They're the best. And I'm in awe with how they're handling this film. Uh, and you know, like... Uh, uh, the, the internet has uh, greatness and misery, and we have to be, uh, um, humbly uh, witnessing all without intervening. Very Hi, um, I just had a question. I've heard you talk about. Uh, using John Abbott's music in I Am Love, uh, which is really beautiful, and I wondered if you could talk about how you came to use John Abbott's music in this film as well, please. Yeah, I love John Adams, and I can't, I can't separate from him. Uh, so, um, uh, in I Am Love, it was like really conceptual. I, I, I wanted the music of the film to be basically only John Adams, and in fact, during the editing, we also tried to put some pieces from um, Charles Ives, um, but uh, we felt that the, even if Ives is, in a way, an originator of Adam's canon, we didn't want to pollute uh, the purity of Adam's music in the film. Uh, then, in, in The Biggest Splash, I used extensively John Adams, uh, but not only. We worked, we mixed John Adams' symphonic flair with Chopin, um, um, so we made this strange mix, and the Rolling Stones. 
Uh, and in this movie, uh, I, I, I asked for the tone, the visual tone. I, in general, I wanted to be very quiet and simple, and I almost didn't want to put any music in it. And if there was to be music, it had to be either something that came from radio or in the disco that was of the, of the times, or a very subtle um, adherence to what uh, Elio plays or who he is. So we went only for piano pieces. Only at the end we allowed the piece by uh, Ravel that we had listened to the in, to in, in piano version earlier to become a moment, a symphonic moment from the radio of the father door. Uh, so yeah, I think John Adams. Uh, um, I like the contrast. I like the way he works with on contrast, and I think that the, the pieces we used here were very precisely. Uh, describing the Americanness of the family within the European canon. Uh, but then, for making something more evident and more, more um, underlying, underlying I, 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 I had the privilege that Sufjan Stevens accepted to collaborate to this movie. And, uh, and uh, we, we, we trespassed the boundaries that we gave ourselves to be either piano or contemporary music to the times of the story, and we went into something contemporary to now, to us, uh, well, e even if I think that Sufjan has a sort of uh, universal and classical approach. And his voice is the comment, is what we, what, to, to talk about the infilmability of this film, I think that what you have in the novel about the first person singular, you have in the movie from Sufjan uh, uh, lyrics in, uh, that you have in the film. And then seven years later, I sent him the script, and 
He said yes. And it was, it was really as smooth and consequential as it is. Actually, he went to, shot, to shoot the, the final portrait, it was here yesterday, and then he came to Kremer to shoot our movie. Um, thank you about what you said about the, the ending of this film. It makes me proud, and I think that we wanted to make economy on, on in the film. We didn't want to go, we, we didn't want to jump into the future of the character. It was, it's about that now. But I believe that what is the material that is lost in this movie from the book is uh, it's every day more tempting me to come back to these characters and to see how you can tell a new story about these people in time, maybe. Yeah, I think because um, I always thought about doing that. Fassbinder was always using the 35mm, almost never changed. Uh, I was supposed to make a movie called Body Art from the Don DeLillo book that I never made, and the, I, I had cast uh, David Cronenberg to play himself in the movie. <laughs> uh, he was supposed to be the husband of Isabelle Luther, who was playing a character, fictional character. Great idea, it never happened. <laughs> and Cronenberg told me in this meeting, of course I was avid uh, to know about his cinema more than talking about the movie, he told me that he never changes lenses, he's always used one lens. So he stayed with me and I, it, it, it was exotic at the beginning. But then I realized that it's actually very, uh, fortifies cinema because it makes you really find only one place for the camera. It really solidifies the point of view, which I think, um, being every story already being told, is the most important thing for a director, the point of view. Um, and when you, in, in a movie like this in particular, when you, um, 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 the medium becomes in, invasive to the performances and the characters, in a way, it's a missed opportunity. So we never flinched, always the same lens. Hello, oh, excellent. Uh, Brother, first of all. Um, I have one question and one demand. Um, firstly, can you tell me why you cast Michael Stuhlberg? Because, I mean, he deserves every accolade going. You said it. <laughs> okay, and I'm um, for Michael Stuhlberg. And once you've talked a bit more about him, can you tell me everything about your upcoming version of Suspiria? <laughs> that I can't. And it's, not, and it's not a Sony movie, so I will not uh, use uh, the space for Sony with Amazon. No, I mean, I, I, uh, uh, we are in the middle of it. We are almost done with the picture. And there is a lot to do for music from York and sound and, and visual effects. But we will be done at the beginning of next year. And uh, this movie, I always think it's a movie about the mother and the father. Not and, in the father. But the, this Suspiria is a movie about the, the, what the Lacanian psychoanalyst, uh, psychoanalyst refers to the terrible mother. And it's going to be quite disturbing. So I don't think it's going to be so cheerful. <laughs> but hopefully, hopefully you will like it.
I want to try to get people who haven't gone to horror movie to see that. <laughs> the cast is great, though. captured so painfully beautifully the dynamic between that dynamic of a new new love um, we just wanted to ask about how how you created that with the two lead actors well uh, that's a big question I don't know we did it <laughs> I think it's a lot to do with the um, uh, who the people are this cast is amazing, and uh, I, it, it was a very benign set. Things happened in a very uh, natural way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> probably can squeeze one more. It's a microphone to the person. That person can take Hi, I just wanted to say thank you so much for. Um, the representation of a queer romance, because it's so hard to find ones these days where something doesn't happen, like a tragedy, or someone dies, and everything is terrible, and it's so hard to find a romance that actually, even though this didn't end up, you know, they didn't end up together in the end, probably in the sequel, um, I really, it's just really nice to see something that didn't end in like a tragedy, which is really nice. Um, I just wanted to ask how you approached, um, like, portraying a queer romance on screen? I, I, um, I didn't thought as this tale as a queer tale, or too honestly, which makes even queerer. <laughs> um, no, I didn't talk like that. I, 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 I did an interview today, and um, two things. One thing is, when we were um, trying to put together the movie, many, many people were not going for it because many financiers, because there was no um, antagonism, there was no, uh, they, 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 were, they, were, they were not antagonists to the couple or in general to Ellie or Abrini. They wanted something evil and most of the comments were, you have to make the mother evil. <laughs> she has to be against them. Which it was really, really, really inconceivable. Um, and um, the other thing is that um, if what what comes first, uh, the, the the way we think a thing, or the way the thing thinks us. So that's why I have strong resistances. Uh, being an absolute advocate of the LGBTQI politics, of course, to think of this movie in that canon. Because I think what I learned, both in life and by doing this movie, is that what is more exciting and striking is that nothing can be put in a box. And that's the beauty of it. So that's, this movie is a testament for that for me. <laughs> 